I'm Tash McGill. And I'm Vincent Herringer. And this is The Feed, a weekly wrap of the news, views and skews on New Zealand food, drink and everything in between. The feed is for those who grow food. The ones who make, harvest and forage. Who package, ship and sell food. Most importantly, for those who eat food and like to talk about it. So join us at thefeed.co.nz and now, welcome to The Feed Weekly. In this week's episode, we take a closer look at the feed itself and our mission around New Zealand's food stories. We'll also be talking to Lisa King about school lunches, social enterprise and what you do when people in lockdown stop buying lunch. But first, the news. What is happening this week, Vincent? Always so much in the news, Tash. Uh, Sunfed Meats last week launched its latest in meat alternatives, bull-free beef, a mince made from vegetables and cocoa butter. Founder Sharma Sukul Lee said the beef offers consumers more choice and creates a new protein industry for farmers while being kinder to the planet. I think we'll see a lot more of this coming, Tash. Iconic Sydney Bar Bulletin Place closed its doors with almost no fanfare at all on the 28th of May. The sweetheart of Circular Quay, eight and a half years after opening, an abrupt announcement. After managing to bounce back from Sydney's lockout laws coming into effect in 2018 that had quite a devastating effect on hospitality over the Tasman, uh, COVID-19 unfortunately did ring the final toll. Co-owner Tim Phillips-Johansson didn't want any long-drawn-out goodbyes that go with announcing a closure, and he wrote, The greatest legacy of Bulletin Place will be the number of extremely talented and hard-working people that have set foot in that bar. Uh, that illustrious group includes New Zealand's own Phil Spector. Over the life of the bar, they created over 10,000 unique cocktails for their daily changing menu of five seasonal cocktails, depending on what was available at the local market. They also made it to the world's best 50 bars list. No small feat and a tragic loss for Australasia. Well, maybe one of the things that could help save icons like that is a government-funded subsidy for restaurant vouchers. Could that be on the way? The New Zealand Restaurant Association told a select committee in mid-May that a 1,000 restaurants have closed since COVID hit in March 2020. A 1,000. That's a lot. A 1,000 forever? Uh, I'm not sure. But uh, Chief Executive Marissa Bidois said that New Zealand should replicate the British government's subsidised dining voucher scheme which is also done in Australia, I believe, to encourage people to dine out at a discount. At $20 per person or $75 million, it's not a huge amount, she said, but it can be enough to get people dining out again. What do you think, Tash? I think anything is worth giving a go, but it's worth paying attention to some of what happened in London and Australia. So uh, the challenge is how much does that discount need to be in order for it to make a difference and not just simply be a little bit of a prop up, but not actually get people back out and re-engaging in hospitality. Mm. So sometimes a more concentrated effort perhaps might make more of a difference rather than a little bit for everybody. Hmm. Well, the government is still to make its mind up on that particular request. So we shall see. We shall see. Uh, and finally, it didn't, uh, COVID, uh, did stop last year's Bluff Oyster and Food Festival, but not this year, Tash. 4,500 people attended the Bluff Oyster Festival as the Bluff Oyster was piped onto the main stage and the ode to the oyster was recited. And that was followed by bluff woman v, uh, Vic Piercy of Barnes Oysters collecting her 10th straight title when she won the ladies' opening race, shucking 50 oysters, oysters in just 2 minutes and 59.42 seconds. It's a lot of oysters. Can you shuck an oyster? I can shuck an oyster, but perhaps 
uh, in that amount of time I could maybe get three done that were presentable. <laughs> Is there such a thing as a presentable oyster? <laughs> They're always delicious. Yeah. I don't know if I could eat 50, but well done. Uh, Ten straight titles, very good. For this episode comes from 1919 Distilling. 1919 Distilling is New Zealand's most innovative distillery and the creator of the world's first pineapple bits gin. And this summer they added raspberry lamington into their Kiwiana range. They are driven by a mission to bring more transparency and integrity to the spirits industry. This is why you won't find them buying away alcohol. At 1919 Distilling, their base spirit is made from molasses, a time-honoured tradition dating back to the 17th century, and it tastes fantastic, with many awards to prove it. And you can order online at 1919distilling.com, that's 1919distilling.com, or visit your favourite local liquor store. What's on the feed this week? Well, it is us. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about us. We're a podcast, a weekly newsletter, and a website where you can find the latest and most relevant news and stories about food, for the food industry, and food people in New Zealand. The feed is me, Tash McGill, and you, Vincent Herringer, and our collaborator, Vicky Ravlett-Torren. And between us, we are publishers, we're writers, we're chefs, spirits ambassadors, broadcasts, and environmental champions. Um, but probably more importantly, I think we really care about telling New Zealand's food stories, uh, finding the ones that are most relevant, and talking about something that we love. And that banner for us is the best, uh, the best of where to eat, what to eat, what to plant, harvest, grow, cook, and on and on. For me, listening to stories about the price of cauliflower in the middle of lockdown last year highlighted that for a country that grows so much food, a lot of us don't really understand seasonality. And so for me, the feed is about highlighting the best of the season, the best of the industry, and what we really want people to know and understand about our food systems. Uh, Vincent, what inspired you to get involved? Uh, well, I think it was because you asked me, Tash, but actually it was a no-brainer because I like our food industry. It's our biggest exporter and most certainly the uh, backbone of our economy, and I think it will be for a long time. But it's also a really dynamic industry. You think about the impact of megatrends like climate change or sustainability on the way we grow our food and make our food, or the demands from consumer to consumers to just be you know, providing ever more nutritious but also cheaper food. That, that's uh, you know, an interesting uh, dynamic. Plus the role of technology, you know, with, whether it's precision agriculture or plant-based alternatives or genetics, the industry is under constant demand to change and adapt and improve. And I'd like to be part of that conversation. I think that media has a, an important role to play in providing analysis, um, thoughtful, uh, critical journalism, but also inspiration, because uh, if we want to remain a world leader in food, then we need our industry to be at its best. I think there's also a role for media to play in education and opening doors of curiosity. You know, and I mean that in more than just offering, say, condemnation on what food choices people make mm -hmm. or, um, you know, uh, giving props and PR to our success stories. But I think that there's a space in the middle. I'd really love to see us in Aotearoa become people who are really engaged with our food systems. You know, whether like 95% of us, you do your shopping at a supermarket, or if you do have opportunity to get really local with your farmer's market or to grow a lot of your own food. You know, I think that despite the fact we all eat multiple times a day and spend between, you know, 32 and sometimes up to 53% of our income on food. Really? 53%? 
Mm-hmm. Spent on food. Mm-hmm. Mm. And yeah. if you're if you're at that bracket where fifty percent of your income is going to food, the other fifty percent is probably going to rent. Um, some of the most important food stories never make the top headlines. Mm. Um, we don't need to change that, but we do want people to have access to that kind of news. Mm. Agree. So the first and easiest thing you could do as a, a listener is click to subscribe on whatever uh, podcast platform you're using to listen to this and then head to thefeed.co.nz and subscribe to our weekly newsletter On the website, you'll find more of our in-depth stories and interviews about emerging trends, important news stories, as well as uh, more of what we know about what people love, recipes, recommendations, and plenty of opinion about food and drink. Okay, well, we hope that you'll join us. And now on with the show. You probably know about Eat My Lunch, the pioneering social enterprise that's won awards for its clever buy one, give one business model. For every lunch you buy, one is made fresh for a child in a low socio-economic school. So far, Eat My Lunch has made 1.6 million lunches. 1.6 million, that's a lot, Tash McGill. But what happened when COVID lockdown sent office workers and schools home for weeks on end? And also what happened when eight months later, the government picked Eat My Lunch to be one of the providers of thousands of lunches for its new school lunches program. Well, it went from feast to famine, and I'm joined by founder Lisa King to talk about her incredibly interesting year. I started by asking Lisa about how anyone goes about making 16,000 lunches a day. Yeah, actually, um, it's crept up since then. (laughs) We've brought on a few (laughs) more skills um, this last term, so it's probably closer to about 18,000 a day now. Um, Yeah, and before, you know, this contract we were doing just under 2,000 lunches to kids a day. So the scale up has been incredible. Um, and over a very short period of time, um, we were only notified we'd won, you know, this tender, I think, November last year. Yeah. And we need to be ready to start delivering lunches by the end of January this year. So it's been a really massive effort by the team to um, – you know, hire people. So we've hired an additional 189 staff over that period. Um, We've had to find another kitchen in Auckland to be able to handle um, all of that, you know, just making the lunches, um, storage, you know, chillers, just everything you can think of that you need. Um, And also lease, you know, probably another 20 odd vehicles to be able to deliver them. So uh, the team hasn't, they haven't had a lot of sleep um, <laughs> over the last few months. And um, as you can imagine, that kind of scale up, you know, just lots of challenges, but learning, you know, every day how to do it better and better. This is all over the Christmas period too. Mm-hmm. Yep. So <laughs> the team were really looking forward to um, having a break over Easter because, uh, yeah, they didn't get much of one over Christmas, unfortunately. Um, but, yeah, they've just done an amazing job. And I think, again, it just goes to show, you know, when there is such a great purpose and, you know, great reason for working long hours and getting up at all times in the morning, you know, people are happy to do that when we know that the impact and the outcomes are going to be really positive. And, you know, that's all about feeding kids. We'll come back to that purpose in a minute, but I just want to know a little bit more about the logistics of that that exercise of scaling up so fast uh, and uh, over such a difficult time period. Just break it down a little bit. Who who did you help 
pulling all that together? Do you have a logistics person who's just like a total, uh, you know, sort of commando on um, on trucks and distribution and so on? Yeah, look, we our team is led by Kelly, um, our general manager, and working with her, you know, we had we've got someone in logistics and supply chain, um, and but yeah, the the team before this was relatively young, um, and you know, probably in terms of experience, you know, at the right level of experience for where Eat My Lunch was. So to actually scale it up you know, this fast, this quickly, um, they've just had to show a lot of initiative um, and, you know, proactivity and get out there and figure things out, as we always have done at Eat My Lunch, you know. Um, And so, yeah, the, you know, Mac, who works in logistics, he's had to figure out how many drivers we're going to need, how many cars, how long it takes to get to all of the schools, um, you know, we're delivering lunches to 35 schools a day. How do you get all the lunches into a van? You know, what kind of gear we need for that? Um, so definitely, I think the learning curve for the team has been incredibly steep. Uh, and they've just done such an amazing job. And, you know, I think it's when we recruited these guys, it was all about attitude and values and um, you know, being problem solvers. And so, you know, where they might have lacked the years of experience, they've definitely made up for that in this very short period of time. It's interesting that you've built all of this yourself. Presumably there already was an infrastructure around food delivery. I'm thinking of the bid vests and so on. You haven't used any of that existing infrastructure? Yeah, it's um, really different Um because we work from one central kitchen and we're delivering to 35 schools every day and every school has a different requirement. You know, so these are the things we were finding out as we were kind of setting up is that, you know, some schools, they want it delivered um, to each individual classrooms. So all the lunches had to be separated and then our driver had to then go to each classroom and place Mm. the correct lunches there. Or some schools have, you know, facility like a hall where all the kids will come. Um, together at lunchtime and so you know it's every school is different Um, and so there really isn't anyone I think who has those capabilities we've definitely been able to get assistance from the likes of you know foodstuffs um, North Island who's uh, one of our key partners and shareholders and they've Mm. been really great in helping us you know for example understand supply chain and um, you know sourcing products at that kind of volume um, but in terms of logistics and delivery, you know, I think um, the other suppliers who are part of this government program have really struggled. But we've been doing it for the last five years um, to 77 schools. So we, we knew how to work with the schools, um, which is really important. And, um, you know, we ha- also are time bound because every school has their lunchtime set and you can't miss that window. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take into account, you know, food safety, how long the, the food can be out um, of the chiller, you know, before it has to be consumed and all of that. So, yeah, we've really relied on, you know, the experience that we've had over the last five years and the investment that we've made around the logistics technology. You know, we have something that we've been using for about four years now called VWorks. And so you can put in all of the addresses and all of the deliveries and it works out like the best route to take. 
um, mm-hmm. and how long it's going to get you to deliver X, Y, and Z to all of these spots by a certain time. So, Is that your own piece of software that you developed? It's not actually. We licensed that, um, but we were one of the first users of that bit of software. So, yeah, use it, you know, using, I think, a bit of technology, our own experiences, but really most importantly, you know, it's the relationship with the schools and understanding their needs um, and also being, you know, really proactive in our communications because mm. when you're talking the scale, something's always going to go wrong, um, you know, whether it's there's traffic, there's an accident on the motorway or if it's raining, yeah. I mean, you know, just Auckland traffic Um or, you know, some, there's been a misdelivery or something. So, you know, we're always kind of prepared for that and just making sure that we are constantly communicating with the schools. Yeah. Um, it sounds like, really you know, create hiring for attitude and getting the culture right has been a, a critical part of your success. And does that have to do with being such a purpose-led business? Uh, it is, but also, um, you know, we have some really key values and, you know, one of the reasons I think and, you know, one of the key values that we have around why we started Eat My Lunch is that we are just so action and solution orientated. You know, we didn't sit around waiting for someone else to solve this problem. We just saw that there was a problem and we decided to do something about it. And that is very much the attitude, underlying attitude of Eat My Lunch. Um, you know, you know, in business, nothing can go perfectly. And particularly when you're dealing with fresh food every single day in this, you mm. know, short, chilled supply chain, things go wrong. And so um, that, you know, being able to problem solve think on your feet, um, you know, improvise. It's just so important in our business. Um, And, you know, the chaos that happens in the kitchen (laughs) every morning, you know, our customers don't see it and the schools don't see it. And um, that's, you know, what we aim for. Uh, So I think, you know, that's always been one of the key things that we've hired for. Mm. And obviously that values alignment. Like you have to believe in what we do to be part of this team. Um, And, that, you know, I think above skills, experience um, is just so important. And there's never a discussion within our team about, you know, should we be doing this or not? Mm, or when mm. we make decisions, everyone's on board because it's always about delivering to our purpose. And so if they're purpose aligned, when things go wrong and things get difficult and when you get a massive contract and you have to say goodbye to Christmas, people are prepared to pick up the sticks and make it happen. Absolutely. You know, and it's just time and time again, you know, I see the team, they just come together and, um, you know, anyone else would have been like, ah, I can't do this. I can't work, you know, uh, you know, all night through or, um, you know, things go wrong and it's frustrating. But, um, you know, even through COVID and lockdown, you know, everyone just were willing to come into work um you know, make sure that they were staying within a really small bubble so they're looking out for the rest of the team, uh, you know, willing to do things that they don't normally do within their jobs, like delivering to, um, you know, 10,000 kids at the time, um, homes. And so it just um, really galvanises, I think, the whole team, particularly mm-hmm. in challenging times. Well, tell us about that mission then and and perhaps put it in the context of the bigger 
challenge that the government is trying to address with this problem that in a in a country full of food how can we have kids going to school hungry what is the nature of that problem and and how did you uh, when did you kind of first think about solving it yeah, so I had no idea that this problem existed in New Zealand. You know, you hear about it in developing countries or, um, you know, like you see kids in Africa not eating, but definitely I had no idea um, it existed in New Zealand. And it was probably about six, seven years ago, um, there was a news piece on Campbell Live where a reporter went to a decile 10 school and asked the kids to put their lunches on their desks. And, you know, every kid had a lunch and they were all beautiful, healthy lunches. And then he drove about 20 minutes down the road to another school in Auckland at a low decile school and asked the kids to do the same thing. And only two out of 24 of the kids had lunches. And, you know, the ones that did bring any food, it was like chips or soft drinks or two bits of white bread. Mm. And um, and that was the first time I was made aware that, you know, we had this problem in New Zealand and actually – you know, in New Zealand, we have a really high child poverty rate. So one in five kids in New Zealand live in poverty. And that means, you know, they don't have um, security of food and or an access to enough food on a daily basis. And they miss out on real basics. Um, and it was then, you know, that I saw that and being a mum, I just couldn't imagine my kids going to school all day and not eating and you know, having to sit there and learn and focus in class. I mean, how can you expect kids to do that when, you know, they're just thinking about how hungry they are? Mm. And so, yeah, I it was just one of those issues that um, I think it just stuck on my mind and it <laughs> kind of kept following me. <laughs> what were and you I doing at the time, Lisa? Uh, I was, you know, I'd spent 15 years in marketing um, for big food companies and so, you know, I was constantly surrounded by food. Um, and I was actually at that time working for Fonterra. So, you know, it's it just didn't sit right with me. Um, and it didn't really, you know, there was no government program at the time. Mm. Um, there were charities doing their bits, but it was really irregular. Um and a lot of the food that was being given wasn't particularly healthy. So, yeah, I just, um, you know, I was wearing a pair of Tom's shoes one night and, you know, they had this buy one, give one model, which I really loved. And yeah. I just thought, why don't we do that for food and for lunch? And so that's kind of how Eat My Lunch um, started, really was, you know, borrowing an idea from shoes um, and thinking, you know, I could use that to solve a problem around food. Mm. And the buy one, give one model has been so successful that you tapped into something. What what was it, do you think, that you tapped into? Was it a concern about food or was it that, uh, uh, was it the buy one, give one? I think, um, you know, when you kind of boil it down, it was, it's the simplicity of the concept so people got that when you bought a lunch and you you know you get your lunch and you're sitting there eating it that a kid was also eating a lunch at the same time 
Mm. And so, you know, the, it was just this one for one and people could understand that. And I think the tangibility of it makes it really powerful as well. You know, being able to see the lunches um, that you're getting as well as being able to come in and volunteer and make the lunches for the kids mm. and seeing what they're getting. So I think that tangibility of the impact really struck a chord with people. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I think what's made the model work so well is that it really kind of touched, you know, New Zealanders' um, hearts and minds. It wasn't just a, hey, buy a lunch, um, that's good for you. And, you know, somewhere down the track something happens and we give a kid lunch or, you know, or here, give us a donation and we'll give – to someone, somewhere, sometime, you know, it's just so immediate um, and tangible. And yeah. also we were addressing an issue that was happening right here in our own home, you know, rather than sending money overseas or, you know, doing something. And so I think that just really struck a chord with people. Mm. Is the buy one, give one model also operating at, uh, for this government contract? No. So this one, it's government funded um, for the lunches that we provide mm -hmm. just on that scale. Mm -hmm. so we're still operating our buy one, give one part of the business because um, not every school is part of the government program. Uh -huh. And so only um, so we still have about 30 odd schools out of the 70 odd that we were supporting that hasn't been um or it hasn't been selected to be part of the government program. So they still need lunches. And That's a great message to, um, to, to pass on, isn't it, that um, just because this program is running doesn't mean that the need has stopped for people to buy your delicious lunches. Absolutely not. And, you know, if anything, that need has grown, particularly, um, you know, during the last 12 months, we're seeing the impact on these families and, you know, um, people losing jobs and just financially finding it so much harder. And so we actually have about another 90 schools on our waiting list. Amazing. That's amazing. It's so disturbing. I mean, it's kind of exciting that you've identified it, but it's so disturbing, isn't it, that nationally we have this problem. And I think another thing that you discovered um, over the COVID experience, you know, you, again, you had to, pivot here's that word again but you had to pivot to change another big logistics exercise to deliver food to kids homes is that right yeah so yeah when we when it was first announced that we we're about to go into lockdown um you know and that businesses were closing and schools were closing and you know, the biggest concern i had was well how are we going to get food to kids because yeah just because schools shut doesn't mean that kids stop going hungry um, mm. And so we kind of had two issues to deal with because, you know, at that time we were only operating the buy one, give one model. And in order for us to give lunches, people had to buy them. Um, and all, you know, our customers are all corporate based. And so when people don't come to work, um, our revenue stream stopped. And so we had to quickly decide what we were going to do in order to try and keep that revenue coming in and in order to keep our staff employed through that period. Um, and so we quickly, as you said, pivoted um, to delivering fresh groceries to people's homes. 
And so we knew, you know, there was a huge demand um, for online deliveries from supermarkets and people were stocking up on um, grocery items. But, you know, you can't stock up on fresh fruit and vegetables. Mm. And so we were able to change the business model really quickly and be able to do that through the lockdown period. How was that funded? How were people paying for their, were the families paying or, or was that coming from donations? So this, these were um, our customers. So people um, just, you know, your average Kiwi who wanted some fruit and veg delivered to their home during uh-huh. lockdown, they were paying for that. And what that enabled us to do was fund then the lunches for the kids. I see. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so the so the model continued. You just adapted it for the circumstances. Yeah. And then for the kids, instead of, you know, delivering fresh made freshly made lunches every day to schools, we delivered to their homes um, a box full of, you know, fresh fruit and um, all the ingredients that they needed to make their own lunches for the week. And so we did a weekly delivery to their homes. And so that was about 2,000 kids a week Amazing. that we delivered to. And I, I was reading that it highlighted another issue for you that has been on your mind for some time about food education because it's one thing to be uh, given uh, a made-up sandwich, uh, which is a great, uh, uh, obviously a great service, but you, this opened up an opportunity also to talk about making food uh, mm. using ingredients, right? Yeah, the feedback that we got during that time was amazing. You know, we were getting photos from families um, of the kids, you know, kind of creating their own food. Um, you know, I remember one photo that we got this uh, kid had made like sushi um, out of the bread and the ingredients. You know, so they'd rolled up the bread with the ingredients in the middle. Um, and then, you know, some of the food that they didn't use for lunch, then they'd make it, uh, use it for dinner or another meal. So, it was just so cool seeing how creative the kids um, got and how much they enjoyed actually being able to cook mm. and make their own um, meals. And, you know, that was the overwhelming feedback that we got from families. Um, and we also partnered with um, the likes of Nano Girl, who provided experiments using some of the food and the packaging in those um, boxes that the kids could do during the week. Um, You know, we had other partners like Kellogg's and Fonterra. Um, So it was a really great way to collaborate with, um, you know, other organisations and then to, you know, give the kids the opportunity to learn how to make their own lunches, essentially. Do you think that people are removed from food and food as as ingredients rather than food as packaged items? Yeah, I always remember being really shocked when I watched something like, you know, Jamie Oliver going into schools in the UK or in the US and asking kids, like, you know, uh, where do chips come from? And they can't actually name, you know, potato as the source or only being able to name, you know, six vegetables. So, um. And, you know, I've just, I like, I love food and I've always taught my kids about where food comes from. So I think it is, um, you know, that food education and also exposure to a wide variety of food is really important. And there's so many things I know I took for granted. Like when we first went into the schools, 
yeah, we had cherry tomatoes in the lunches for the kids. And a lot of the kids were like, what is this? Um, huh. You know, they'd never had a cherry tomato before. And my kids were eating that when they were like 18 months old. <laughs> so, yeah, it just, um, yeah, it kind of really shocked me, just yeah. the lack yeah. of food knowledge and education. Is there any connection between what you do and community gardens? I know that a lot of schools have gardening projects, and in fact, there's a, a, a project. There is a gardening project. So I've just momentarily forgot the name. It might be Eco Schools. But is there a connection between growing and and making that could be made? Yeah, I think again, it's just about scale, um, and you know how we do that because there is there are a lot. You're right of school gardens. Um, it's whether they can produce enough <laughs> for all of the kids or, mm. Um, mm. you know, when you're talking about feeding 16, 17,000 kids a day, um, you know, how mm. do we that, link that's, those That's some market garden, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Lisa, it's I been mean, great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, it's been great talking to you. I, I, I did promise we would um, – we would wouldn't keep you too long. So if if um, you're still open for business for buy one give one, ha, ha, just remind us what is the website and how how do we engage with Eat My Lunch? Yeah, so uh, if you go to eatmylunch.nz, um, basically you can order lunches for uh, you know team meetings, um, for events, functions, and every lunch purchased provides a free lunch for a kid in need. Um, and we're also always looking for, um, you know, people who want to come and volunteer and help make the lunches for the kids. So much in that story and interview. The big takeaway for me is that COVID is the long tail. And I know that we keep saying it and people will probably continue to say it. But I think that's because whether it's the pivot that industry uh, leaders are having to make, that food businesses are having to make, or simply the way that, you know, month to month, the impact of COVID is still having, uh, having it's forcing industry leaders into having to change the way they go about doing things. For me, it just highlights that we're, we're in a pivotal time for this industry. Mm. Uh, kind of highlights how affected the food industry has been by COVID, both uh, in, in terms of shutting down and now coming back, you know, whether it's a government contract or whether it's customers busting down your door because they're desperate to go out and eat again. Uh, and there's just so much pressure on both sides of those, you know, the, the famine and, and the feast. And at the moment, the, the feast is now putting different demands on owners, isn't it? Where are they going to find the workers, the chefs, the mm-hmm. waiting staff, the pickers, yeah. um, the and shelf stackers? We, and, we, and we hear about this story in fragments, you know. We hear about the, the, the risk of not having enough seasonal workers, you know, in play for the orchards, for, you know, various parts of the agricultural sector. Um, and then we also hear about, you know, the immigration woes that are facing, you know, dining establishments and mm. not being able to find enough staff. Mm. And then I think there are other parts of the supply chain and the manufacture chain that we haven't even begun to dug into, you know. So for some of our distillers and our producers, the the impact of shipping delays on getting product into the country to be able to bottle and then export and distribute mm, the mm. product that they're making. Mm. There are all of these tiny little pieces, and I think it provides a big opportunity for New Zealand as a whole to be thinking about 
many of the parts of the manufacturing or the food processing industry that we've relied on export and import for potentially actually could provide opportunity for new industry to get established here. Um, Something to think about. Mm. Interesting. Whoever thought freight forwarding would be a topic of conversation, but that probably is um, something to revisit. And just quickly, Tash, I just want to mention, you know, that this uh, government program called uh, Kaora Kaako is the the food program. Um, So good. You know, they they ran a trial and they found that kids' brain function improves, their alertness improves when they are well-fed. And hunger has a, a dramatic effect on learning. But also, here's an interesting thing. If kids are hungry or have no lunches, they won't come to school, partly because of the shame. So actually, it's driving up uh, attendance as well as improving learning outcomes. So who knew food was good for learning? (laughs) I suspect that there's quite a few people who have known it for a while, and they're probably glad that somebody's taking note of one. Okay, so what's coming up this week in food? Well, I think it'll be interesting, Tash, to see what the fallout is of all that terrible flooding in Canterbury on farming at the very least, but our food supply. Mm, Indeed. Uh, Also, we'll have plenty to celebrate the Lewisham Awards, Auckland's Hospitality Awards coming up this weekend. So we'll have more to talk about that next week. And to close us out, appropriate as ever for myself, being a fan of whiskey as I am Um, this week it was recorded the first written mention of Scotch whiskey in the rolls of Scotland a friar John Corr was recorded as the distiller in 1495 my how far we've come The Feed Weekly is brought to you by 1919 Distilling subscribe to our newsletter at thefeed.co.nz see you next week (laughs) 